Well, we're happy to have Kyle uh, continue on in John 6 this morning. One thing we have come to the conclusion of, to the realization of, we could spend a lot of time in John 6. So, <laughs> we will again today, and I'm not sure how much after that, but uh, let's just uh, hear what the Lord has to say to us this morning. Father, I just thank you. Uh, Kyle is willing to open the Word and to... Let your message come through today. We just pray your blessing on him as he speaks. Bless our time as we listen. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. It's great to be here with everyone today. For those of you who are watching on YouTube, I'd like to say good morning to you as well. I'm glad you're here with us. It's great to be here in the house of the Lord, especially after uh, unfortunately having to miss last week to study the Word together, and to be together. And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny the things that you miss whenever you're not together. We were in the back, and uh, the ushers usually pray with me back there because I'm nervous walking around. And I, uh, I was jokingly talking to Kevin about how I needed to be woke up this morning, and he should give me a headbutt. And I heard, okay. <laughs> and uh, he just took me on the shoulder right into the door. So I'm awake now. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it wasn't that big of a deal, but uh, it's great to be prayed for, but it's always special to be prayed with, and I appreciate that very much. Now, as Dwayne said, we are going to be continuing on in John chapter 6, but we're going to start in Matthew 14. But uh, before we begin, I think that we need to kind of have a little bit of an overview of chapter 6, and I would strongly, strongly encourage you that as you go throughout this week, please read John chapter 6, so that as we go through it, all of the things that we're going to speak about are fresh on your mind. Because there is a lot in there. Some people say that this is the one of the densest chapters in John. Some people say that it's the most confusing. Some people say that it's the saddest. And it's unfortunate that it's described as sad because the crux of this chapter is recognizing true discipleship. And we would think that that would be a joyous occasion whenever we read about that. But we'll see that the chapter starts with the miracle of the feeding of the five thousands and the multitudes coming to Christ and seeking him. And it ends with verses speaking about how disciples left him and how Jesus knew that one would betray him. As you go through, you'll see in verse 26 that Jesus kind of begins calling out some of the crowd in a way when he states that they're seeking him because of signs, not because of a relationship with him. They're wanting something from him, kind of what we would call prosperity gospel. And as you get towards the end in verse 66, you'll see that John tells us because of Christ and what he was teaching these people, that as a result of this, Many of his disciples left and would no longer walk with him. And then in the following verse, we see that. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to leave also? But as you're going through chapter six during the week, one of the the sections that most people get caught up on is verses 53 through 58. And that is because Christ tells people to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And that's kind of an alarming statement. It kind of catches you off guard there. And it did the people who were with him. But I would encourage you not to get too caught up in that. 
He's not promoting some type of cannibalism, and it's not transubstantiation, which is a mostly Catholic belief that when you take communion, the bread and the wine physically and literally turn into his flesh and his blood in your body. It is a metaphor that he is using. Jesus uses metaphors to describe himself and to describe what is happening in a relationship with him. Just like in John chapter 10, he states that I am the door. It's not as if when we become saved, this door appears and we walk through it. It's a metaphor. And in that, he's using that to describe himself as the bread of life and the bread that comes from heaven. So because of all of those things, I would encourage you to read through the chapter. And I would also like to encourage you as well that when you're in a sermon or you're listening to a podcast, you're reading the word on your own. If something is being highlighted for you, something is is really coming to your attention. Trust the Holy Spirit in that. Look at the cross references, examine your heart, read more scripture, come to him in prayer and try to gain an understanding of why this is being brought to your attention. And I hope that that happens today. As we go through the story in the beginning of John 6 and in Matthew 14 of the journey on the sea or of Christ walking on the water. So if you haven't already, turn to Matthew 14. And we're going to be reading verses 21 through 33. Now, if you want to see the entire story across the three Gospels, it would be Matthew 14, 21 through 36, John 6, 15 through 21, and Mark 6, 45 through 52. But today, we're going to be focusing just on Matthew 14 and John 6 and piecing the story together of what was happening during this event and the ministry of Christ. And as always, we'll be looking at an event through three lenses, prophetically, with foreshadowing, symbolically, and literally what is happening in these moments. So Matthew 14, verses 21 through 33. There were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. Now immediately he made the disciples go into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When he got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Now part of how we know that this is the same journey is that in all three of the Gospels, John, Matthew, and Mark, it immediately follows the feeding of the 5,000. Now the main focal point, or one of the main focal points of Matthew in the account that we had just read is Peter. Peter. 
And Peter's stepping out of the boat and walking towards Christ. Now, John MacArthur kind of has a, some funny points whenever he's talking about this story. He says, well, first off, why would you ever respond to anything that you thought was a ghost? And second, he kind of wonders if the reason why Peter stepped out was because the storm was going to kill us anyway, so why not? And he just took a step. <laughs> but I think the reality of what is happening there is that in this moment, Peter is trusting what he is seeing and what he is hearing. The storm is raging all around him, and yet he sees the light and the darkness as John describes him. It is at night and it is dark, and yet they are able to see Christ on the water. And he is trusting in that. And if we were to take a symbolic approach, we would state that Peter is surrounded by chaos. He is surrounded by a raging storm. And yet as long as he focuses on Christ, he is okay. It is only when Peter focuses on what is surrounding him that it begins to engulf him and he sinks. And yet when he sinks into the waters of chaos, when all is engulfing him, he cries out, Lord, save me. And Christ is there to pull him up. Now, how often in our life is it like this as well when we cross into a trying time? We see the storm around us. And our focal point is on Christ and we head out into the storm knowing that Christ is powerful and knowing that he will give us the strength and the courage to weather it. But the farther out we get from the boat, the more the storm that rages around us catches our attention and distracts us from him and begins to engulf us as we take our focus off of him and allow fear to creep in and conquer us. But how great it is because of his love and mercy that we can cry out, Lord, save me. And he will come and pull us out of the mire as he did with Peter. Peter only feared when he took his eyes off of Christ. Otherwise, there was no fear. But also when you read this story, we see that the people who were in the boat, the ones who were suffering in the storm were the ones who were righteous and the ones who listened to Christ. It's not as if they got in the boat to flee from something or to escape. They were in the boat in the sea because he told them to do this. This was a storm that he knew would have come, and yet he sent them into it. It was the righteous who obeyed, who were suffering in this moment. And yet Christ used this storm to draw them to him. This storm they are facing, he is using to draw them to him. He is using it so that they will cry out to him, Lord, save me. So that in this moment, they will see his power as he calms the storm. And they will see him help them through the storm that they could not have survived without him. The trials and the trying times of life are often used by Christ to draw us closer to him. And it makes us think of the book of James in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, where he states, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, for Peter, this event was a little bit of a foreshadowing, was it? Because we see that in the storm, he took his eye off of Christ, and Christ had to come and pull him out of the water. And we also see that during the turbulent times leading up to the crucifixion, Christ or uh, Peter took his eyes off Christ again and denied him 
three times, but was restored again by Christ after the resurrection. And so the perseverance that James speaks of that comes to us in trying times, we see Peter have as he continues to grow in his faith. He took his eye off of Christ in the storm. He denied him three times, but he never denied him again. Even as you read through the gospel and we get into chapter 21 and we see that Jesus predicts Peter's death to Peter. He tells him, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God and then said to him, follow me. Now, we would think that the man who panicked in the storm and the man who denied him when he was told how he would die for following him and then asked to follow him would be the first one out the door. But he wasn't. We know from church tradition that Peter was crucified as Christ, but he was crucified upside down because he did not deem it worthy to die in the same manner that his Savior did. Now, we said that we're reading Matthew, and then we're going to get into John chapter 6, but we also talked about how Mark speaks of this. And we're not reading Mark's account today because essentially they overlap with Matthew. They're pretty much the same, except for one verse, Mark 6.52. And in that, Mark explains what is happening in this voyage in the sea. In Mark 6.51, it states that, Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. And then... But they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. The struggle of the voyage in the sea was so that they would be taught what they had missed at the incidents of the loaves. When they missed his display of power, when they missed him providing for those who sought him, he allowed them to weather this storm so that he could teach them in this moment. Now, these are the things that... Matthew points out, and there's more of them if you'd like to dig into them. But if this is what Matthew is pointing out, what is it that John points out? Because John's account is substantially shorter. So turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. The Gospel of John, chapter 6. And we're going to be reading verses 15 through 21. Comparatively, it's a very short account. But the way that the two tie together is very unique. John six fifteen through 21. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. Oops, excuse me. Turning pages here. To make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into the boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land which they were going. Now, John 6 makes it a point 
to state that they left at dusk, dusk being about 6.30 at night. And Matthew 14 states that when Christ came to them, it was the fourth watch of night. The fourth watch is a Roman term for the time period between 3 to 6 a.m. So if they left at 6.30 and Christ came to them between 3 to 6, at this point, they had been fighting in this storm for 9 to 12 hours, and they were only 3 to 4 miles away. Can you imagine how discouraged they would have been? How taxing it would have been, not only on them physically, but mentally and spiritually, to be heading down a path that they knew they were supposed to, and yet struggling so hard and fighting for their existence. And yet it states that when they received him into the vessel, it was immediately on the land where they were heading. It was immediately there. And how often do we face trying times and we decide to put our head down and power through it? And if we would just stop and invite Christ into the moment with us, into the struggle to share the yoke with us, we would get to the end result swifter, easier, less painfully, and at the very least, with more joy. And yet that takes a destruction of pride to invite him into our lives to help us. Now, prophetically, there's just a few minor prophecies about this. Some state that Psalm 77, when it talks about him, uh, God treading on the waters, is a prophecy about this. Others say it's talking about the Red Sea. But in Job chapter 9, verse 8, when he's talking about the power of God and his divinity, Job states that he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. This is an aspect of the divine. And in Isaiah 43, 2, we see that God is speaking and he tells Israel that when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. Now, both of these are prophetic to a degree, but they're also calling back in a way to Genesis 1, as John does when he speaks of Christ so often and as this story of Christ walking on the water does. Now, to understand this, you need to know that in Jewish poetry, which is what a chunk of the Old Testament is written in, sometimes elements represent different things, and water represents chaos. So you would see, anytime there's water, there's always a chaotic event happening. It doesn't mean that it didn't literally happen. It's just something that goes with it. So water and the parting of the sea, the Israelites are being chased. Water turning to blood, God is showing his power. Water at the time of creation, and God is hovering over them. Now, when you read Genesis 1-2, you'll read that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the earth was without form and void, and there were waters. And so if you were to ask a Jewish person what the creation story is, They wouldn't necessarily say that it was God making something out of nothing. They would tell you that it was God bringing order to chaos. That is the creation story to them. And an example of this would be in Psalm 104. You see the psalmist speaking of water and all of its power. But now it has a boundary to where it can no longer destroy the land because God had made it so. And it sits and it runs and streams between mighty mountains and it feeds wild beasts. This once destructive force that destroyed the earth is now completely under his control. And it is ordered 
for the sake of man or for the sake of his creation. So when you have the turbulent waters and Christ is walking over them and then Christ restores order in the time of chaos, he is showing them who he is. But it's more than just that. When you read this, look at how in Matthew 14, 27, Christ answers Peter. He says, do not fear. It is I do not be afraid. And that is the same way that he responds to him in 620. Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. But that word I translates in the Greek to I am. It is I am, do not be afraid. And I am is the name that Moses was given to tell Israel, the people in Exodus 3, I am sent me. And it's how Christ refers to himself seven times in the Gospel of John. I am. I am the bread of life. I am the door to tell these people who he is. This isn't just Jesus walking on the water. This is I am hovering over the waters of chaos to restore order, just like he did in Genesis 1. And these men knew that, and they knew what they were looking at. When you read the first boat encounter, the first voyage in the sea in Matthew 8, You see that when the winds came, the men were fearful and they went and woke up Christ. And he goes and he calms the wind and he calms the storm. And how do they respond in that moment? They respond with, what kind of a man is this that even the winds of the sea obey him? But after Matthew 14, when seeing him hover over the water and respond with, do not fear it as I am, they respond with this. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. They knew what was happening in this moment and what they were looking at. Now, as you go through the Gospel of John, there's a few miracles. We see the water being turned into wine and we see some healings. But then all of a sudden, this voyage happens on the sea And when these men are tired and they're exhausted and they are absolutely at their lowest point physically and mentally, they are slammed with miracles. We see Peter walking on the water, miracle. Peter sinks and is saved, miracle. They make it back to the boat, which is a miracle. Jesus calms the wind and he calms the waters, miracle, miracle. And then they are immediately at their destination, another miracle. How often is it that when we are at our lowest point, our absolute lowest point, that is when Christ displays his power to us, just as he did these men. And it's crazy to think that in verse 67 of John 6, Jesus would ask these men, do you want to go away also? You do not want to go away also, do you? After they had witnessed all of this. That is crazy to think about, just like it's crazy to see him feed thousands and walk away because his teaching was difficult to grasp, among other things. So as we go through this week, I hope that this stays with all of us, that as we go through the craziness and the chaos with life, if we will simply cry out, Lord, save me, and invite Christ into the vessel, he will help us, he will guide us, he will take us, Where we need to be. He will show us his power in our weakest moments. He will blind us to the chaos that surrounds us. And when we take our eye off of him and fear creeps in, he will save us 
And he will restore us just as he did Peter. Amen. Let's pray. Christ, we thank you for all things that you have done for us. We thank you for the word that we can read that teaches us your ways. We thank you that the weather is let up and we have the opportunity to be back together again. I pray, Lord, that you keep us all warm, that you protect our houses, that you allow us to be able to relax and enjoy the company of loved ones. I pray, Lord, that you put us on each other's heart as we go forward through the week, that we lift each other up in prayer, and that you continue to guide us as we move forward. Amen. Pick up your red hymnal. 